Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, being the best on my Times radio show. You can listen live uh, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. I'm in Glasgow today. The tour of the country continues. we in Edinburgh yesterday, Glasgow today. I was on stage at the Stand Comedy Club last night with a comedy tour. Um, I had a bit of a Theresa May moment um, at one point. I eat something on stage uh, and ended up choking and coughing and spluttering for 10 minutes. But luckily, so far, nobody has given me a P45 and the set hasn't fallen down. Later this week, we will be in Exeter. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to be all over the country. We're going to uh, Leeds and Cardiff, Taunton, Lyme Regis and Cambridge and Manchester. So hopefully we'll be near you at some point. Right, coming up on today's episode, we couldn't come to Scotland and not speak to the polling guru that is Professor Sir John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde. He'll pick through the opinion polls, polling in the deep, a Scottish special. Uh, how has the political landscape of Scotland changed so much over the past 25 years? Uh, where do people stand currently on having a second independence referendum? And uh, what are the fortunes of the political parties? Who's up and who's down? We'll also hear from two of the smallest parties in Scotland with very mixed fortunes. The Greens are on the up, on the up so much, they're now in, entering a power-sharing agreement with the SNP and they're feeling very pleased with themselves. Less so the Lib Dems. They know something about uh, entering a coalition and things going wrong. Uh, <laughs> we had a bit of a ding-dong between two MSPs. Uh, that's coming up on the podcast. But first, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. No Finkelvich this week, because we thought we'd speak to some of our colleagues in Scotland. So joining me in the cafe in Glasgow, Helen Stewart, the Sunday Times TV writer. And from the Times in Scotland, columnist Kenny Fox. Morning, Matt. Uh, I see you tried to curry favour with your Glasgow audience last night. <laughs> wearing, a, wearing a tartan suit. I did wear a tartan suit last night. Although, to be clear, uh, the tartan suit is, te- is travelling with me on the whole tour. It's not just some cultural appropriation thing of me coming to Scotland. Uh, I'm not wearing the local... Car- I'm not going to go to Somerset and wear a farmer's frock and a... Go to Not- Nottingham and wear a stab vest. I'm just, we- <laughs> I'm just going to. Yeah, I'm wearing the tartan suit because uh, I had to get a new suit because I had a, I had a suit, a maroon suit, for my tour that I did 
pre-lockdown. Mm. And sadly, as a result of lockdown, it no longer fits. Tartan is oh. a very forgiving, very forgiving fabric. The new suit fit. I said, I said a, a joke I did on the, st- uh, on the, uh, the show last night was that I, my old suit, I called the Celtic Rangers suit because the two sides couldn't meet without a certain amount of violence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just wouldn't do up. So I'm glad, I'm glad you appreciate the suit, Kelly. I'm glad you Very appreciate this. So. At least they let you leave at the end. Um, that counts as a win. Yes, exactly. They were very, I'll be honest, they were quite a posh Times reading, Times radio listening audience. They were very well behaved. So mm. it was very good. Albeit, uh, half the audience was made of people dragged there on Valentine's Day. Not <laughs> quite sure what they were doing there. Anyway, let, we're not here to talk about me. Let's talk instead about Vladimir Putin, although they hate it. He will hate having all this attention. Um, Kenny, what have you made of the news that um, Ke- uh, Vladimir Putin's packing up and going home? And we've all made a fuss about nothing. <laughs> well, th- there's two possibilities here, aren't there? Number one, it, it could be a bluff. You know, it, its intention could be to get the West to let down its guard before before Putin hits hard. And, and, and that really would be straight from the Russian military playbook, which puts a lot of stress on the element of surprise, or or number two, it could be it could actually be Moscow backing down, in which case you know I think we have to consider how, how history will judge what's happened here. Did Putin bottle it? You know, did he test the West's resolve, only to find that we were well resolute, uh, or or does he now think he's proved this point and sent a strong message to the the other dozen or so? former Soviet republics, that they better not mess with him, that he has this capa- capability to, to, to menace them if, if they don't do um, what he wants. Have you been following this closely, Helen? Not extremely closely, as a television critic. Um, <laughs> my what, children have been coming up to me and saying, are we going you could to have just ignored war? all the way through, and we're back where we started. Well, <clears> I mean, I, just, I, I've hoped from the very beginning yeah. that it's saber-rattling yeah. or shashka rattling or whatever it is uh, Russians have but uh, and it, it, let's hope that it is let's hope it's just Vladimir Putin trolling the world but it's embarrassing for the world it's humiliating everybody's he's he's said oh I'm bringing out my, my troops and I'm parking them in your yard and what are you going to do about it and we've said uh, not much there's also something about Liz trusted the media around this morning when mm-hmm. she, early doors she was on Times Radio saying oh yeah. trying to get uh, they clearly had no idea what, what was going on on the ground. She was sort of learning in real time the same as the rest of us. I'm not sure what this tells us about the, you know, the, the diplomatic uh, machinery of government. <laughs> well, actually, if I'm honest, I've been quite comforted by the, the diplomatic machinery because, if anything, hearing lots of foreign office people on the radio talking eloquently and with erudition about things that they know about rather than clearly, as most of our politicians seem to do currently, just bluffing their case and I'll put a hat on and see how this works. So actually, I've found their presence uh, quite comforting. I'd like more revelation of the machinery. <laughs> the machinery, very much. the more of the machinery. Yeah. The more of the machinery. And it's also, it's been interesting, isn't it, Kenny? Because we've had this situation where um, Keir Starmer has been sort of shoulder to shoulder with Boris Johnson on this. You know, they're trying to simultaneously have an argument about Jimmy Savile while also being uh, presenting a united front on Ukraine. Yeah, very much so. And I think Starmer is, is, is really um, living up to his promise to be the, you know, the party of national security and uh, national pride, um, uh, comparing himself with Attlee and, um, and, and uh, talking about the, uh, the, the Labour's role in the, in the formation of NATO 
back in the 1940s. And um, I, I, you know, this is something he needs to do, obviously, to 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 um, feel at one with the Red Wall voters and to project himself as a as a national leader with the Union Jack behind him and whatnot. So I think I think he he he, he the, the, there's no there's no contradiction there. He can side with um, Johnson on a, an issue of national security while still opposing him um, as a, as prime minister on that in the Commons. Let's um, uh, look uh, closer to home now. We've had some new jobs figures. I was just uh, looking actually to see uh, the the full breakdown. So the full. So what is it? Seventy-five point five percent of people are now in work uh, across the UK. That's the employment rate. Uh, that's up 0.1% from July to September. So is it 75.9% in England, uh, 74.1% in Scotland. It's actually down a touch in Scotland, down half a percent uh, in Scotland, 70.7% in Northern Ireland, 74.5% uh, in Wales. Um, uh, uh, but the cost of living crisis coming down the road, whichever part of the, the, the UK you're in, isn't it, um, Helen? You know, you've got uh, wages aren't keeping up with the the, the fact that prices, the cost of life is going up. Yeah, and petrol. Petrol. Petrol, diesel. You're not going to be able to get anywhere shortly. Yeah. So, you know, it'll just be to your local shop. Yeah, no, I, um, just as a parent, as a mother, as, a, as the shopper predominantly already very much noticing prices going up and everybody's terrified about their um, gas and electricity bills. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's deeply worrying. Kate Forbes, who's our finance secretary, she has said we're going to have, if you're in a, a kind of lower um, band of, of uh, council tax, which isn't that low, I'm going to tell you. It's kind of low to medium band of council tax and everybody's going to get £150. This is, copy- is this copying the Rishi Sunak yeah, your two hundred pound loan. Yes, no, yeah. but the, he al- <laughs> no, he also did the council tax thing. Right, but then also that we don't get bogged down in the barnet formula. <laughs> I think there's a certain amount of money that goes, and then she's been able to choose what to then do with it. Yeah, well, I wish it were more targeted. I must admit, I think it's kind of the argument is, I suppose, that if you're poorer, then one hundred and fifty pounds will mean more in terms of your budget. Correct. It's kind of proportionate yeah. universalism yeah, 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 yeah. thing. But I'm not aware that people who are skint are more resistant to cold, right? They, they, I think our bills are still broadly the same, yeah. unless our properties are enormous. And that's in fact, actually, so fact what, that half the case, if you look at things, if you've got prepayment, you know, if you oh pay gosh, your yeah. your energy bills using a prepayment card thing, then mm-hmm. uh, you actually end up paying more. Extortion. And actually, the energy cap is higher for those people most likely to be struggling to pay their bills. Yeah. So I don't really have any particular insight into how it could be better targeted. I did see that the Fraser of Allender Institute... Um, had made some suggestions, basically saying we should get a social services yeah, in fact, infrastructure so It's, it's the same. So um, Richie Sunak announced a £150 council tax rebate for uh, housing bans A to D. It's and the uh, it's the same thing that she's yeah. uh, she's chosen to do there. And the, the same criticism is that by the time you get up to band D, that's yeah. quite a lot of houses. Yeah. Uh, that's quite a lot of houses included there. What do you make of uh, Kate Forbes, uh, Kenny? But since we've been up here, her name's come up um, quite a lot as being... Um, quite impressive and an interesting. She was sort of slightly thrown at the deep end, but she's uh, she's quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, she, she's thirty-one years of age. She's the effectively the Chancellor of Scotland, yeah, the Finance Minister, although obviously with um, with not as many financial responsibilities as Rishi Sunak. But you know, and she's r- routinely mentioned as the most likely successor to to Nicola Sturgeon. 
uh, who, you know, Nicola's been minister for 15 years and first minister for almost eight, and it, it's sometimes hard to imagine Scottish politics without her. But within the Holyrood bubble, you know, that you, 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 I'm not surprised that you've picked up a kind of constant speculation about what might bring about Sturgeon's departure, first of all, and who, and who might replace her. Um, and certainly, uh, uh, Kate is 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 the the, the 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 person who's most often mentioned in that. But obviously, yeah. you know, the circumstances, what will bring that about, I think, is 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 a more immediate uh, question in Scottish politics. You know, um, what will be what will be the moment when Nicola Sturgeon decides to stand down? Yeah, well, that'll be interesting. Now, before I let you go, because I'm slightly conscious of the time, uh, Helen, we need to talk about this is going to hurt. Mm. Is it great telly or is it misogynistic nonsense? It's it's both. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the, this is the Adam K. It's the book all about um, uh, what's the what's the part the name of the department he works in? Guy. Well, I can't even repeat what he calls it. Yeah, let's not get bothered. Yeah. Uh, but um, and it's it's now on the telly. It's been over uh, bone washers in it. What do you think of it? Um, I think it is frightening, misogynistic. I'm very curious as to why it was made. It's, ba- it's based in uh, 2006. It doesn't feel very in step with the times. I am more of a call the midwife girl. I mm. I quite like call the midwife because I get to have a sleep. When yeah, it's I think it's a, they're beautiful <laughs> female stories, and this is a, this is a crumbling NHS. This is terrifying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you seen it, Kenny? I haven't, but I I do wonder if the, the problem with it is its timing. You know. Yeah. It's too soon after the COVID crisis to have a laugh about the NHS. You know, yeah, we're not yeah, even yeah. really through it. There's still hundreds of people dying every week. And, you know, the, the I think there is an appetite for TV drama and literature and cinema to come up with great art that is yeah. equal to the pandemic and does justice to, you know, the, the all, the, all those compelling human stories and what an extraordinary moment this is. For, for the world and yeah rather um, than uh, rather than the this NHS is not it. this is not this, it. this is, is not, not it. it well well I might watch it anyway Helen Stewart and Kenny Fox and then of course you can read them both in the Times and the Sunday Times online or in the Scottish edition uh, but just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box up next we assess the state of polling in Scotland as we go polling in the deep 
And we thought, well, as we're in Scotland, uh, we'll take a look at what's actually happening in polling in Scotland with the legendary pollster, Professor John Curtis, Senior Research Fellow at NatSen and, of course, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning to you, Matt. Um, we'll, we'll talk about exactly where public opinion is right now. But one of the things I want to sort of reflect on is we're coming up with this year's 25 years since the uh, 1997 uh, general election. And if you go back and look at, you know, what happened in, in uh, that election, uh, it, it just really sums up just how how dominant the Labour Party were in Scotland uh, and the Lib Dems too. And now you look at the map and it's sort of, instead of it being a sort of sea of red and orange, it's a sea of yellow. What, uh, explain, cause rather than just sort of looking at individual polls and that sort of thing, well, yeah, yeah. how has yeah, that yeah. happened? What has happened? Yeah, I, I... Absolutely. Well, of course, the one of the original political purposes of introducing devolution, having the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh, where you were yesterday, was indeed to try to, as um, Lord George Robinson put it, the then Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland, to kill nationalism stone dead. And that's, of course, not exactly how it worked out. Now, there are various things going on here. Um, one undoubtedly is that one of the things that we discovered very rapidly the moment we started polling to ask people how they might vote in the Scottish Parliament election as opposed to how they might vote in a Westminster election, we suddenly discovered that people were more likely to say they were going to vote for the SNP. Um, and that indeed, because in Scottish Parliament elections you're asking people, well, who's best for Scotland? A party, one of whose principal um, claims is we stand up for Scotland, we do so more so than anybody else, found it rather easier uh, to win votes. So that's number one. The SNP from the beginning of Scottish Parliament elections was rather more competitive, certainly in those elections, although it took a while for it to translate to Westminster elections. That's number one. Number two, perhaps this one might surprise you, but I would also say that this is in part a legacy of Black Wednesday back in September 1992. When the uh, ideas for devolution were being developed in the late 80s and during the 90s, the basic assumption I think that people had who were developing these is that essentially politics in Scotland would be an argument between Conservative and Labour, uh, much as it is at Westminster. But in the wake of the 1992 um, uh, Black Wednesday, which of course did terrible damage to the Conservatives standing across the UK, but in Scotland it had the effect of turning the Conservatives into the third most popular party north of the border. And that then began to be registered in local elections that took place in 1994 and 1995. So that therefore, when we got to the first, of course, by early 1997, the Tories suffered a complete wipeout in the parliamentary election. So that when we get to 1997, it's not the Conservatives who are Labour's principal opponents. It's already the SNP. Uh, so that A, they're advantaged by the Tory weakness and B, the fact that people are more willing to vote for them. So that's, that's part of that story. Then I think effectively we then come to 2007. And arguably, I, you know, we could, uh, we could debate this one uh, happily for many hours, but arguably the next crucial step was the failure of Tony Blair to resign as Prime Minister before the elections that were held in May 2007. Certainly those that, that election gave the SNP the chance to become a deeply minority government. Um, uh, you know, you only had one more seat than Labour, but the Unionist parties said, well, we'll let the SNP run the show and see how they get on. 
The problem for the unionists is that the public's reaction to the unionist uh, minority government of 2007-2011 was, well, actually, they're not bad. They're quite good. They've done quite a good job. And in particular, one thing that the SNP were willing to do in office was to state when they disagreed with Westminster, whereas under New Labour, they, you know, the, 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 the argument had always been, you, know, you don't expose your differences in public. So therefore, it doesn't matter whether it was Donald Dewar or, uh, uh, or Henry McLeish or Jack McConnell, who was first minister, or who were Labour first ministers in the first eight years of devolution. You know, the, the, the Scottish administration was not always seen to be standing up for Scotland. Okay, and that's that's really that's, interesting. That's, a, that, that's crucial. And then, of course, what then happens is we get the 2011 election. Labour fight a disastrous campaign in Scotland, epitomised or symbolised by uh, a campaign event in, when, in which the then uh, Labour leader Ian Gray was accosted by a well-known left-wing activist in Glasgow Central Station. He got bundled into the front of a submarine sandwich shop and then out the back. And this was the man who, according to (laughs) Labour's campaign, was going to stand up to the Tories. There was a swing to the SNP in the wake of of that incident and other incidents. The SNP gets an overall majority. David Cameron agrees to a referendum. Now, why did David Cameron agree to a referendum? He'd read the opinion polls. Of course, the SNP will lose, and they will lose badly. And that will kill the nationalism stone dead. Well, that didn't work either, because although the, the yes side lost the, 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 the referendum, they ended up much stronger than they had been beforehand. And in particular, then, of course, in a general election, which took place just a few months later, virtually everybody who had voted yes in September 2014, wanted to repeat their vote by voting for the SNP in the Westminster election. The SNP's popularity now extends to Westminster elections. They now come to dominate Scotland's representation north of the border. And then the final bit of the story is, of course, Brexit. Because Brexit provides the SNP with the best possible advert for their long-standing claim that for so long as Scotland is a part of the United Kingdom, it's always at risk of having its wishes overturned by the different views of people in England. And that's why at the moment, and we now come back to the present, we are looking at a situation in which half of people in Scotland wish to be outside the United Kingdom and the other half wish to be inside. So that's basically the quick story of of a failure (laughs) of a project in five minutes. That's that's very good. I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground there. Some of which I think probably from a from a Westminster perspective, we haven't always totally appreciated, including the fact that bit about uh, Tony Blair hanging on, uh, although he went in later in 2017. That was after those elections. Uh, 2007 it was after those elections that happened. But as you've mentioned, independence. Then Andrew, fire up the gramophone. Let's have another one. Like oh, yes, like a polling stone, John. Uh, so uh, let's turn our attention then to uh, opinion. Pub, where is public opinion on independence? Because uh, you, you're right there. On the on the one hand, the SNP were very excited about, well, not excited, but they thought that Brexit might be the uh, the thing that turned public opinion. But actually, for quite a while afterwards, it didn't seem to. But what, what's what's been going on with that? With with where the public are now on, well, on it, independence it, it, and what it, that it, might look like going into a referendum? Yeah, I mean, this is another fascinating story where things basically did not turn out as, frankly, either side in the argument anticipated. Um, Matt, I, I think I remember talking to you during the 24 independence referendum. You'll certainly remember that we spent hours in that referendum 
arguing about whether or not an independent Scotland could or could not be a continuing member of the European Union, i.e. would it just be able to say we're already inside and we'll just carry on, or as the UK government was arguing, oh, no, 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 you'll, you'll be outside, we're the continuing member and you'll have to reapply for membership. And there was an endless argument about this. The interesting thing is that what we learned after the election, after the referendum, was that all this debate was a complete and utter waste of time because there was no relationship between people's <laughs> attitudes towards uh, Britain's membership of the European Union, where they voted yes or no. Because although the SNP's vision of independence since around 1990 has been of independence in Europe, and they were, uh, you might therefore think that people who like the European Union would be more likely to vote yes, there has always been an element of nationalist opinion that has basically said, what is the point of liberating ourselves from London, only to put ourselves into chains from Brussels? Indeed, if we then move forward to the 2016 EU referendum, there was no relationship or virtually no relationship between how people voted in 2014, yes or no, and how they voted in 2016. Yes, Scotland voted by almost two to one in favour of staying inside the European Union, but that vote was almost as strong. Uh, there was almost a third of yes voters who voted uh, to leave as there were amongst uh, no voters. However, after the Brexit referendum, things actually did change and they began to change quite quickly, but not in the headline numbers, as you already referred to. What began to happen is that indeed, as the nationalists had anticipated, some of the people who had voted no in 2014, remained in 2016, were sufficiently upset about Brexit that they switched to yes. However, some of those people who had voted yes and leave went, ah, boy, if the United Kingdom has got the sense to get out of the European Union, then actually I'd rather be inside the UK, outside the EU, than independent Scotland that's inside the EU. <laughs> and these two groups for a long time counterbalanced each other. But what was true was that support for independence, and indeed, by the way, for the SNP, began to be linked to people's attitudes towards Brexit uh, in a way that it wasn't before 2016. But as I said, for a long time, these two things counterbalanced each other. However, of course, there are a lot more people in Scotland who voted uh, no and remain than there are who voted yes and leave. So if this process continued, then in the end, it was going to have an impact. And basically, it began to show through in 2019. So while you and I were had our attention uh, gobbled up by what was going on in College Green, opposite the Houses of Parliament, with the endless, exciting <laughs> things oh, going days, on. John. Right, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. The days when we can all get together and not worry about COVID, absolutely. Um, we, no, we never did we think it would, could, 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 would, we would uh, all have, be uh, locked away for so long. But anyway, um, but what, meanwhile, north of the border, however, as that Brexit debate intensified, so you get a shift towards yes amongst Remain voters that is no longer being counterbalanced by an equivalent shift um, in the other direction. And by, the, by basically the, the, the time the United Kingdom leaves uh, uh, the European Union, we were looking at basically 50% yes, 50% no. And that's still where we're at now. It's still the fact that basically a majority of people who voted Remain are in favour of Scotland becoming independent, about 55%. Amongst Leave voters, on the other hand, it's no more uh, than a third. So, it, 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 so in effect, the fact that we're now indeed having a debate about whether there should be another referendum and that we are having a debate against a backlog where, frankly, neither side has the foggiest idea whether they would win or lose 
that is one of the legacies of Brexit. So that's the uh, that's where we are on uh, uh, the, the opinion around independence. I'm interested though in, in how that dovetails with opinion on domestic politics and domestic parties. So Andrew, Andrew, stick another record on. Oh, like, oh, like, oh, like, So, uh, John, yeah, where is public opinion on uh, domestic, uh, on the on the political parties? Who would up, who's up and who's down? And one of the things that I've picked up over the last couple of days, speaking to several people here in Scotland, is this question of for years the SNP basically didn't embark on major political reform, whether that was schools or hospitals or roads, whatever it might be, because they didn't want to rock the boat. You want to keep as many people on side as possible in the hope of getting independence over over the line. And instead what's happened is they've been in power for so long now that they haven't addressed those things and now they've got a domestic record to defend which might actually now count against them in the pursuit of independence. I just wonder your thoughts on that too. Well, let's first of all just tell you, I mean, we've had a couple of polls conducted since Partygate first uh, hit the headlines uh, back before Christmas. Uh, they're pretty consistent. Uh, uh, the SNP, 47, 48. That's roughly what they got in the elections in May last year. Um, Labour now, crucially, running second at 22. The Conservatives, in the wake of Partygate, now running third north of the border, running at about 18%. Uh, the Conservatives are at risk in the local elections that we have at the beginning of May of coming third for the first time in a Scotland-wide election since uh, 2016. Uh, Liberal Democrats... Uh, running um, at around uh, 7-8%. The Greens, by the way, certainly not suffering from their, the fact that they're now a part of the government in Scotland, getting about 12% on uh, the, the regional vote. Now, to come back to your question, well, <laughs> sure, the SNP does have a record to defend. And if you ask people about how well the health service is going in Scotland, at least before the pandemic, how well um, uh, they think schools are running. Yeah, you get very much the mixed message. However, this is not the question that <laughs> seems to dominate voters' minds in Scotland. Because if you look at how people voted in the devolved election in May, roughly speaking, between 85 and 90% of those people who said, who were saying at that point in time they were in favour of independence were saying they were going to vote for the SNP or in the regional list election to a part of the election to vote for the Greens. And around 85 to 90 percent of those people who are opposed to independence were saying they were going to vote for one or other of Conservative, Labour or Liberal Democrats. And the truth is that um, how people vote, which, part, which party people vote for in Scotland is now tied more closely to their view on the constitutional question to a greater extent than ever has been in the past. If we go back, for example, to that 2011 Scottish Parliament election in which the SNP got an overall majority, they didn't do, they didn't do that because at that stage, 50% of people were in favour of independence. Um, at that stage, it was no more than 30% or a third or so. At that stage, around 40% of the people who didn't want independence were still voting for the SNP. Those days are over. The SNP vote is essentially the independence vote and everybody else's vote is the union's vote. Of course, the crucial advantage that the nationalists have 
despite a degree of fragmentation of the Greens and despite the efforts of Alex Salmond as now leader of the Alba party, the crucial advantage that the nationalist side has is that politically it's effectively united, whereas unionism is fragmented across three different political parties. So lots of talk about the SNP and Labour and the Conservatives and so on. We thought we'd uh, have a little look at what's happened to the, um, the smaller parties, although smaller parties, uh, at least one of them, has uh, quite a lot of influence. Uh, we uh, join him here in the cafe from the Scottish Greens, the Scottish Green MSP, Ross Grimm. Morning, Ross. Good morning. And on the line, we've got Alex Cole Hamilton, the leader of the uh, Liberal Democrats in Scotland. Hi, Alex. Good morning, Matt. Nice to have you with us. So um, I feel like we've got potentially, you know, one of, one, one of you could give advice to the other of what happens when a small party goes into coalition with a bigger party and how not to get uh, eaten up. So, Alex, as, as a member of the Liberal Democrats, do you have any advice for Ross? Now that the, the Greens are officially in uh, a power-sharing agreement with the SNP in Scotland, uh, do you want to uh, offer any advice on how, how not to get destroyed by the electorate at the next available opportunity? Well, I think the one piece of advice I would give Ross is don't lose sight of your moral compass, but I'm afraid that seems to have happened already. Let's remember that this uh, partnership agreement, I can't believe it's not a coalition coalition, was signed to emulate uh, the agreement that was signed in the Antipodes in New Zealand between Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party and the Greens there. The crucial difference between those two agreements was that the Greens in New Zealand signed that with the climate emergency at the heart of this agreement, whereas in Scotland, this partnership agreement was signed with independence as being the, the totemic centrepiece of this arrangement. Um, and I know many Greens, particularly in Edinburgh, who are astonished at that. And, um, and we've already seen on things like vaccine passports, um, the Greens surrender their, their values on this. And I can tell you, the, the voters will find you out, Ross. And I know that from bitter experience. Blimey, so this is talk a bit feisty already. <laughs> Ross, what have you done with your moral compass? I'll tell you, Matt, there is actually one similarity between the Greens and Lib Dems' experience in government. Six months into government, which is where we are now, the Lib Dems were polling at about 12%, and the Greens are polling at about 12%. The difference is, for the Lib Dems, that was down from 24%, and for the Greens, we are up from 8 People actually like what they're getting from the Greens in government because we're delivering for them. I mean, what on earth did the Lib Dems deliver for the people who voted for them in 2010? You know, two weeks ago, we delivered free bus travel for every young person in Scotland. That's 930,000 young people who are now eligible to travel on the bus for free because the Greens are part of the Scottish Government. And if you look back at the study that was done after last year's election, it's really, really interesting. The people who voted for the Greens and for the SNP did so for positive reasons. For the SNP, it was because they liked Nicola Sturgeon, they felt the government was competent. For the Greens, it was about our values and our policies. The number one reason that people voted for all three of the unionist parties in Scotland wasn't a positive one. It was just to stop the SNP. We're actually motivating our voters with our values, with our policies, and we're now, as the Green Party, in government delivering for them, not just on free bus travel, we're now delivering rent controls. We've introduced the UK's first nature restoration fund, £55 million went into that. You know, Alex talked about the climate emergency. The Greens have massively raised the Scottish Government's game on the climate emergency. We've actually even managed to shift the SNP's party policy on oil and gas, not just government policy, but our partner in government are now shifting their party policy, and we like to think that we've had a positive influence on that. Alex, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because one of the things that I often hear from unionist parties, Conservative, Labour and Lib Dem, is, oh, Nicholas Sturgeon's obsessed with independence. And actually, quite often, it's the unionist parties who bang on about that quite a lot as well. What's the positive, uh, optimistic message that the Liberal Democrats have got beyond vote for us and stop that nasty Nicholas Sturgeon? Well, I'll, do, I'll come on to that in a second, but just to address your point about unionists banging on about independence, it's not the Liberal Democrats that are bringing 
important parliamentary or uh, important parliamentary time is being taken up with a bill to pave the way for another unwanted referendum. I say unwanted because right now you poll anyone in Scotland and it is way down the list of priorities. Why? Because there are warning lights across the dashboard of public policy and educational attainment, mental health crisis, the worst drug deaths in the entire world are in Scotland right now. These are domestic policies that require it. After everything we've been through, Scotland needs new hope right now. That's what the Liberal Democrats aim to provide. We have been trapped between two, a clash of nationalisms. That is, of course, the SNP's uh, Scottish nationalism shared by the Greens rather inexplicably um, and the Brexit nationalism of the Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. We're told that every election is either a tussle for a referendum or against it and our people are suffering because of it. As I say, we are trapped between politicians but, uh, Alex, and isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that democracy? Did Nicola Sturgeon and uh, both the SNP and the Greens want Scottish independence. They've got a majority in uh, the Scottish party. You can have an argument about uh, timing and so on. But if you put in your manifesto, we want to have a second referendum on independence and you win that election, you have a right to say we want a second referendum. Don't you? We were the only two parties to make gains in last year's elections. Unionist parties lost seats, including Alex's. It's not even big enough to be classed as a party in the Scottish Parliament anymore. The Greens and the SNP were the only gains made. Oh, that's very Alex. generous of you, Ross. We, we, we're talking, you're talking to the guy who got more votes than any other candidate in the history of the Scottish Parliament. I can't say, think that we're, we're going backwards entirely. Look, that's part of the problem, though, is that there isn't a, a full mandate I mean, for it, another <laughs> referendum. It's tainted. Nicola Sturgeon changed position halfway through the election campaign when she saw that the polling was, it was hurting her to be constantly front-loading the issue of independence. We suddenly had postcard sent to most households in Scotland saying, with an empty lectern, saying who do you want to lead us out of the pandemic and door after door we were meeting people who were saying look, it's, it, you know, th- there's a crisis going on, we don't want to change governments in, in midstream and that, in fact you saw that right across the country, the Conservatives in, in London and, and the Welsh Assembly, it was a steady state election because people didn't want to change governments in midstream. Now, now We're now having this idea that this mandate of a second independence referendum is being rammed down our throats when actually we need to invest in education, the massive educational attainment gap, which is only getting bigger. And I'm astonished to hear Ross Greer, who has been a passionate defender of education, educational attainment, defend the government's record on this. This is terrible. We've got kids who are still Just miles fight, behind yeah. and need to catch up. Alex, let me know, because Ross, there's an interesting point that, that actually uh, SNP have been in power under Alex Simon and Nicholas Sturgeon for a long time now. And there, is lot, there are lots of domestic issues, as Alex was saying, whether it's the issue of drugs deaths, the state of the NHS. Actually, if you look at the pandemic, the overall outcome of the pandemic hasn't been that different to, between Scotland and England. The logos might have been different. The, the overall health, health outcomes haven't been that different. And education is a real problem in Scotland. And that, that, that should have been tackled much sooner. And you're now part of that and you've got to defend it. Yeah, I mean, I, I led the opposition to the SNP's performance in education in the last session of Parliament. Um, I was the one who managed to force the government to reverse the disaster of the grading scandal in 2020 and get young people's exam grades restored. The only reason the Greens went into government with the SNP was because we managed to negotiate a comprehensive 50-page policy programme full of green policies, including a really significant reform of the education system that's only happening because of an independent review of the curriculum for excellence in Scotland that, again, 
was secured by the Greens. Whether it's a reform of education, whether it's the National Care Service, whether it's our efforts on climate change, our domestic policy programme in this session of Parliament is transformational. I'm not here to defend what the SNP did in previous sessions. I was in the opposition criticising We will have to defend them this time, Matt, over the next two years. Absolutely, because the Greens are part of this yeah. government, but we're really proud of its programme because it's genuinely transformational. That's why we're more popular well, than we were at last year's election. Well, maybe we, we, we'll come back in three or four years and see yeah, see what difference that, <laughs> that's made and see if, uh, see if you and Alex can get on slightly better. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.